Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Sullivan, Indiana. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Twenty-year-old Tiffany Adams fought her way into adulthood, and I mean, calling her childhood a struggle would be an understatement. She lived in what we'll call an unstable environment with her mother, Christina Orr, and her biological father. Before her teen years, her biological father passed away, and her mother remarried to a man named Bruce. Bruce took on the role as Tiffany's father without any hesitation at all, and the two became inseparable. So we're going to refer to Bruce as her father throughout this episode because that's what Tiffany considered him. Bruce and Tiffany's mother's marriage did not pan out, but even after the divorce, Bruce remained her rock. He was always there when she needed him and even when she didn't. He was the one stable relationship that Tiffany could always fall back on. And while she remained close to Bruce, she actually had some trouble when it came to her relationship with her mother. From Tiffany's Facebook, it seems like she felt like more of a caretaker to her mother than a daughter. Tiffany was an avid user of social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and a lot of her struggles with different people in her life were documented in real time. In a Facebook post, Tiffany vented about the fact that her mother was in a relationship with what she called an idiot. The idiot she's referring to here is her stepfather, Brian Orr. She said that the idiot wouldn't let her mom talk to her alone and would always come in with a bunch of questions when they were trying to have any kind of mother-daughter relationship. It looks like Tiffany's mother tried to leave Brian at some point because Tiffany said that she took her mother in, got her help, and listened to her cry, but in the end, her mom went back to him. She said that she prayed nothing bad would happen to her mother, that she'd seen the bruises and knew how he was, but that she was giving up. Tiffany's social media was informative and heartbreaking at the same time. You saw this constant struggle of wanting to love and the fear of getting hurt. She seemed to love first and learn later. You didn't have to earn her respect. It was given until she got burned, and it looks like she got burned a lot and by the people who were expected to love her the most. In May of 2014, at 19 years old, Tiffany surprised her friends by announcing that she was pregnant. She posted a picture of a very positive Walmart pregnancy test. Anyone who has tried to conceive probably knows exactly what I'm talking about, those little purple and white tests. And this wasn't one of those positive tests that you have to hold up to the light to see if it's positive. This was bold. And maybe that contributed to the debate on when exactly her due date was. In her initial responses to friends, she said that she was due on December 31st, but it looks like that was later corrected to January 31st. It wasn't entirely clear who the father was at first glance, but in digging through Twitter, it looks like it was a guy named Steven. She made a tweet about him going out of his way to bring her some ice cream that she had been craving. The following month, Tiffany turned 20, and the day after her birthday, she posted to Facebook that the FBI was at her father's house. Yep, plot twist already. From what I can tell, there was some kind of investigation going on about money being offered as an incentive to vote for certain people, and they thought her dad might have been one of those people. That was never brought up again, but there was a mention of the FBI in the middle of researching a case, so I figured it was worth mentioning. The next month of Tiffany's pregnancy wasn't any easier than the last. She came down with a kidney infection and was hospitalized for a hot minute. They had a hard time getting it under control, but eventually she was released from the hospital with some antibiotics. 
In August of 2014, Tiffany made it to the 20-week mark, the halfway point of her pregnancy, which meant it was time to find out the sex of her baby. All of her friends thought that it was going to be a girl, but it was a boy, and Tiffany could not have been happier. The first thing she did with the little money she had was go out and buy a little blue onesie for her son, whom she had decided to name Bryston. Between July and August, Tiffany had made a couple of posts about tensions in her life. She didn't name names, but she did make the following posts. Post 1. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be controlled. You telling me what I'm going to do in life is a bit too much. I know my goals. Post 2. I love the fact that you're trying to win my love with money and trying to be my baby's father. Yeah, not happening. You're immature and annoying. It's hard to tell whether she was talking about a parental figure in her life, her son's father, or a potential new love interest, but what we do know is that in September of 2014, she started dating someone new, a guy named Donnie who she'd known back in high school and had recently gotten into a relationship with. Donnie went headfirst into their relationship, well aware that she was pregnant. Tiffany posted, I love the fact that I was once very good friends with Donnie. I remember always playing baseball and laying outside, bored out of our minds. That was high school days. Now we're older and remain friends. I never thought things would turn out this way. It's pretty amazing that we have talked for almost a month and we don't annoy one another. He's not controlling whatsoever and we have a blast just chillin'. We have both seen each other cry and we have both been put through some rough stuff. I can see us actually going somewhere. We're both trying our hardest. He has put up with a lot out of me and had my back through thick and thin. Honestly, he's not only my boyfriend, he's also my best friend. The rest of the month on social media was an ode to their new relationship. She posted that Donnie completes her, showed off her 26-week baby bump, and posted about being in a relationship where your partner totally understands you. September had seemed like a pretty good month for Tiffany, but the first half of October really sucked for her. She got a puppy and the puppy died, and there also seemed to be a rift in a relationship. I could assume who she's referring to, but she doesn't name names, so I'll summarize the post. She talked about how she couldn't believe she'd gotten herself into a situation like this, and that she dreads the fact that she has to spend the rest of her life with this person in her life. She also mentions the fact that she's going to be a single mom, that someone was willing to sign over their rights, and according to Tiffany's posts, she said that this person told her that he didn't know if he could handle this and that Tiffany made him want to punch babies. Tiffany was adamant that she wasn't going to let someone come in and out of her son's life and that she wasn't going to give her son this person's last name. As the month went on, she didn't allow the struggles of her life to dictate the fact that she was counting down the days until she could hold her little baby boy in her arms. So she showed off her growing baby bump and got another cute little onesie for baby Bryston. Tiffany wanted a better life for Bryston than the one that she'd been dealt, and for her, that meant moving out of Sullivan about 40 miles away for better job opportunities. It seemed like this move was a pretty quick decision, but one that she made for the right reasons. She moved on October 27th, and by October 29th, she posted that Donnie had already gotten himself a job at Buffalo Wild Wings. The following day, Tiffany applied for a job, and the day after that, she found out that she'd been hired. It looks like they were both working at Buffalo Wild Wings. This was a new start for Tiffany, but even though she was only 40 or so miles away from her hometown, she was really missing her family and struggling with the idea of having to learn a new town and feeling like she was a stranger in a new place. However, it does seem like Donnie was doing everything he could to make her feel at home. 
Tiffany posted to Facebook that she loved how she and Donnie were able to work the same shift and praised him for spending his off hours taking care of her. I mean, at this point, she was working on her feet all day at around seven months pregnant, so you know her legs were crying. As you can tell from the last 1100 minutes of this episode, Tiffany was on social media a lot. And not just a meme here and some song lyrics there, she updated everyone she knew about damn near every detail of her life and pretty much on a daily basis and on some days multiple times a day. But all that stopped on November 3rd of 2014. Her last post read, yay, off work, with a little smile emoji, and then there was nothing. On the morning of October 5th, 2014, a court document on Justia Law states that Tiffany's dad, Bruce, picked up her and her boyfriend from their new place and drove them back to his house in Sullivan. On top of spending time with her family, she planned to pick up some baby stuff for Bryston while she was in town. When the three got to Bruce's house, Bruce left to run an errand, leaving Tiffany and Donnie at the house alone. At some point, not long after her dad left, Tiffany told Donnie that she was going to walk to her mother's house, which was literally half a block away. So that had to be fun for Bruce and Tiffany's mom, but that's not why we're here. Well, it kind of is, but we'll get to that. Bruce came home from running his errands and Tiffany wasn't there. Donnie told him that Tiffany had walked over to her mom's house, but that she hadn't come back. News didn't start breaking about Tiffany's disappearance until two days later. A lot of people wondered why, but according to WBIW, Bruce was under the impression that he had to wait 48 hours before reporting someone missing. Since the 5th, no one had been able to get in contact with Tiffany. There were no updates on any of her social media accounts. She did not pick up her check from work, and her phone had been turned off, like straight to voicemail, undelivered texts turned off. Tiffany was seven months pregnant, living in a new place with a new job, trying to build a new life with her new boyfriend and a baby on the way, and she had constantly been in contact with her friends and father up until the 5th. None of this was adding up, and her father knew immediately that something was wrong, and for a brief public moment, it seemed like Donnie did too. The news about her disappearance did start off pretty slow, but according to members of several Facebook groups and pages dedicated to Tiffany, Six days after she was last seen, Donnie posted the message, please bring my baby girl home. Not please come home, please bring her home. That same day, locals started posting online about the road her father lived on being blocked off by police. As it turns out, a canine unit had been brought in to try and track Tiffany's scent. And they did. According to WBIW, the dogs alerted to Tiffany's scent somewhere between her father's house and her mother's house but that was really all the information they gave. What confused everyone was the fact that the hit indicated that Tiffany had been in this particular area sometime within the past 12 to 48 hours, which didn't seem right. Surely someone would have seen her. This was a pretty close-knit area, and everyone locally was well aware that she was missing, regardless of the overall lack of coverage her disappearance had gotten in the media at this point. It didn't make any sense, but they had something, and maybe these dogs just had supersonic go-go gadget noses that worked well beyond their training. 
It's at this point in Tiffany's case that the rumor mill started flying. There was talk about Donnie being arrested, but very few details had been released, and honestly, most of it was done by word of mouth. But it raised a ton of suspicions, and as far as anyone else knew, he was the last person to have seen her, and now they were hearing that he'd been arrested. Those suspicions were pretty quickly squashed, though, when word of mouth also determined that the arrest had nothing to do with Tiffany and was allegedly tied to some kind of unpaid bills. After the Donnie hiccup of suspicion, everyone seemed to come together and say that Donnie was being supportive and cooperative and that he was out. It looked like any suspicion on Tiffany's baby's father was also put to rest when Post said that even Donnie said he didn't think he was involved. So who was left? This is when everyone's attention focused on Tiffany's stepfather. Someone who knew Bruce posted to the Tiffany pages and groups saying that Tiffany had in fact made it to her mother's house and that she had called him twice after she'd gotten there. He said he couldn't make out what was going on, but said that he'd heard a man yelling in the background, a man that he assumed was her stepfather. And I mean, her stepfather was making weird posts on Facebook. Initial reports had said that Tiffany never made it to her mom's house, but her dad was certain that he'd gotten phone calls from her while she was there, and according to a screenshot from her stepfather's Facebook, she had. The screenshot of her stepfather's Facebook post said that Tiffany had been at the house and while she was there had told them that she loved them and was moving in with her sister. He then says that Tiffany walked out of their house and headed back to Bruce's and disappeared. Either Tiffany made it to her mother's house or she didn't. Both cannot be true. Bruce and Donnie were both adamant that they never saw Tiffany after she left Bruce's house, and initial reports were that Tiffany never made it to her mother's house, but Bruce was saying that she had called him from her mother's house and her stepfather was straight up posting on Facebook that she had been there. So the plot thickens, and then it goes silent. And I'm talking nada. The Facebook groups and pages were nonstop, but as far as media coverage, there was almost nothing. I mean, a 20-year-old girl who was seven months pregnant vanished into thin air and it felt like no one cared, which got some people thinking that maybe the police knew something that the public didn't, which is 100% true 90% of the time. There were three main theories. One, that the police just didn't care and weren't doing anything to find Tiffany. Two, that the police did care but were holding back information in an effort to not tip off whoever they were looking into. And three, that Tiffany had run off on her own because she had open warrants and was worried about getting arrested and missing the first however many months of her son's life. According to WAWV, the police did say that they were hoping when Tiffany gave birth, they'd be able to trace where she was. All theories were possible because, frankly, no one knew anything. The police weren't saying much, the media wasn't reporting anything new, and Tiffany was facing some trouble. I couldn't tell you exactly what kind of trouble, but she had her demons. This wasn't a secret, especially considering her upbringing, but none of that made her life or her baby's life worth less than anyone else's. Tiffany was deeply loved by her father, by her sister, by her boyfriend, by her friends, by the rest of her family, and by her entire community that had really band together on their own to try and get to the bottom of whatever had happened to her and baby Bryston. Her due date was coming up and they were running out of time. November came and went with no sign of Tiffany. She didn't show up for Thanksgiving, and she didn't reach out to wish her mother a happy birthday, which prompted her mother to speak out to the media. 
She told WAWV that this was the first time Tiffany had ever missed her birthday and that she and Tiffany's stepfather have been looking for answers since the day she went missing. She told the outlet, I cry when I think about the fact that I haven't been able to watch her stomach grow. She's my baby girl. She's my only daughter. Throughout December, the community in Sullivan came together several times to organize their own search parties. They got together ATVs, searched wooded areas, searched levees, up, down, high, low, they searched it. But there was one thing everyone seemed to notice was missing. The presence of Tiffany's mother. Some of the people on Facebook groups and pages were openly frustrated with her lack of presence, while others seemed to be pretty glad that she wasn't there. There was an air of suspicion around everyone who lived in that house, and that's a really nice way of putting it, because they used a lot more four-letter words than I usually do, which is saying a lot. According to NewsBarb.com, Tiffany's mother had actually filed a protective order against Bruce on December 2nd. She claimed that on November 8th, he had threatened to burn her and Tiffany's stepfather's house down with them in it. She claimed that on November 14th, he threatened to beat Tiffany's stepfather's ass and kill them all. She also claimed that on November 30th, he'd followed them everywhere and at one point pulled up, honked his horn, and pointed a finger gun at them. And on December 2nd, 10 days before filing this, she found a brick wrapped in a pair of shorts. Do with that what you will, but most of the discussion I saw around this protective order filing was that Bruce seemed like a father who felt like they knew more than they were saying and was upset about it. All Tiffany's father and sister wanted for Christmas was to find Tiffany and bring her home safe, but just like Thanksgiving, Christmas came and went with no sign of Tiffany or baby Bryston. With a little more than a month left until Tiffany's due date, IndieStar.com reported that a newborn baby had been found at Eagle Creek Park. The baby was believed to have been around a day old, but was found deceased. The park wasn't exactly close by, about an hour and a half away. However, the sweatshirt the baby was wrapped in had the logo of a college in the same county that Tiffany had moved to just a week before she had gone missing. Everyone wondered if maybe this was Tiffany's baby. There was no hoping that the baby found in the park was Tiffany's. Regardless of anything, it was horrifying and heartbreaking, but the possibility that it was hers meant that maybe they were one step closer to either finding her or figuring out what might have happened to her. But it was determined that the baby in the park was a little girl, and Tiffany was expecting a boy. It wasn't baby Bryston, and there was still a little hope that they might be able to find Tiffany and bring her home safely before she gave birth. Unfortunately, that hope came to a horrifying end just two days later. On December 30th of 2014, a document on Justia Law reports that two farmers were harvesting corn in a field in Sullivan when they found a body. It was fully clothed with a red fleece jacket tied in a knot around its neck with a leaf tied into the knot. With the discovery of the body, a homicide investigation began immediately. Due to the state of the body, the police couldn't determine who it was, let alone whether or not it was the body of a male or a female and Tiffany was very pregnant when she went missing, so it seemed unlikely that they wouldn't be able to tell pretty quickly whether or not the body in the field was her, but it was never ruled out. 
It took three days, but after comparing dental records, WTHI reported that the body found in the field was in fact the body of Tiffany Adams, as well as the body of her unborn son, Bryston, still in her womb. Tiffany's cause of death was listed as ligature strangulation, and that document on Justia Law also reported that she had a broken rib from an unknown cause. This wasn't just a homicide investigation anymore. This was now a double homicide investigation. The day after Tiffany's body was identified, her mother and stepfather did an interview with WTHI. Her mother told the outlet that Tiffany was the sweetest girl and that the story she got was that Tiffany left her father's house to see her. But wait, hadn't her husband posted on Facebook that Tiffany had come to their house, told them that she loved them and that she was moving in with her sister, then left their house and then disappeared? Her stepfather told the outlet, whoever is out there that did it, you will get caught. Her mother echoed, I can't even imagine that person being a person. Over the next couple of weeks, there was silence, but that didn't mean that the police weren't working their asses off behind the scenes. In fact, any feeling of the police aren't doing their job was completely gone. During a balloon release for Tiffany, the sheriff himself, along with other officers, came and participated. And they didn't just release balloons with the community, they answered any and all questions anyone had. On January 20th, 2015, less than a month after Tiffany's body was found, the waiting ended. The news broke that an arrest had been made and everyone waited anxiously to find out who it was. I mean, everyone thought they had a pretty good idea, but they wanted to hear it for themselves. And when they finally did, it wasn't exactly what they were expecting. The man arrested and charged with killing both Tiffany and baby Bryston was an or the same last name as her mother and stepfather. But it wasn't Brian, and it wasn't Christina. It was 32-year-old Jonas Orr, Tiffany's stepbrother. What motive would he have to kill his pregnant stepsister? Well, according to the Tribune Star, back in 2013, Tiffany had accused Jonas of raping her when he was supposed to be giving her a ride back from a party. According to WBIB, Tiffany's mom said that she was aware of this, and according to the Sullivan Daily Times, Brian said that he was also aware of this allegation. To add to the possible motive here, the Tribune Star reports that old Jonas Orr decided that just two months prior to Tiffany's disappearance, he was going to file a protective order against her, but not just Tiffany, against her her mother, and his sister, saying that they were all harassing him and accusing him of rape. So not only was Jonas saying that Tiffany was accusing him of rape, so was his stepmother and his sister, all of which he denies, though it smells like a heaping pile of gaslighting with a dash of weaponizing the justice system. If you're trying to get Big Mad today, after all of this, Brian Orr had the audacity to tell WBIB that the police had the wrong person in jail. Oh, do they, Brian? Police held a press conference that the Tribune star did a phenomenal job reporting on. In the press conference, police told the public that a lot of things had occurred throughout the investigation that the public just wasn't aware of. They said they didn't want to show their hand because they'd just be educating the suspect. All facts. Jonas had been the primary suspect in Tiffany's disappearance since the beginning. Nonetheless, they made sure to account for anyone else who could have been involved and ruled them out. 
They're certain that Brian acted alone when it came to the murder of Tiffany and her baby, but we'll get to some shady shit in a little bit, so hold on to your britches. Over the next year and a half, motions were held, and you know the deal, requests for a change of venue, arguing over what will and won't be admissible. Oh, and they found Tiffany's cell phone. According to the Tribune Star, it was found at the bottom of Lake Sullivan, just two miles away from where her body had been found. And it wasn't just some random search, they'd received information that it might be there. In June of 2016, Jonas's week-long trial began, and it was a fucking doozy. We'll start this out by putting together a timeline of Tiffany and Jonas's day on November 5th, 2014. The timeline comes from bits and pieces reported by NewsBarb.com, The Tribune Star, a court document on Justia Law, WBIW, and The Sullivan Daily Times. A little after 7 a.m. on November 5th, 2014, Jonas borrowed his buddy's Chevy Blazer to drop off his buddy's girlfriend at work. Where this woman worked was less than a mile and a half from where Tiffany's body was found. He dropped her off sometime between 7.30 a.m. and 7.45 a.m. After dropping her off, he took the blazer back to his own house. He was supposed to drop it back off to his buddy on his buddy's lunch break sometime between 11.35 a.m. and 11.40 a.m. Between 10.54 a.m. and 11.16 a.m., Tiffany called her mom's phone and her stepfather's phone four times. Within that time frame, at 11.15 a.m., Jonas left his house in that blazer. One could assume that he was taking it over to his buddy at work to return it, but that is not what happened. Between 11.56 a.m. and 12.09 p.m., Tiffany's phone was used seven times, back and forth 14 times, to text Jonas's wife, Amber. Yes, you heard that correctly. Jonas and Amber shared a single cell phone, and that phone was with Amber on this day. Jonas's wife had no idea whose number was texting her, but it was Jonas using Tiffany's phone to tell Amber that the blazer he had borrowed was broken down on a country road and that he'd be late getting it back to the guy he borrowed it from. When Amber asked whose phone he was using, he did not tell her that it was Tiffany's. He told her that the phone belonged to a couple who had stopped out with him on the side of the road to jump the blazer. His last text to his wife from Tiffany's phone was that he needed to give the couple their phone back. That was a lie. At 12.46 p.m., Bruce, Tiffany's father, got back home from the store and Tiffany wasn't at his house. Donnie told him that she'd walked over to her mom's house to see if she had any pain pills. And I want to encourage everyone to try and not use this information to judge Tiffany because, again, regardless of her demons, she was a human being who had worth and did not deserve to be murdered, nor did her unborn son. Now, Donnie said that Tiffany never stayed at her mom's for more than a few minutes, so when she wasn't back within 30 minutes or so, he got worried and called her mom's landline, but no one answered. At 12.59 p.m., Tiffany's phone made an outgoing call to her father. According to the Star Tribune, Bruce testified that during one of Tiffany's calls to him that afternoon, he heard her say, Dad, Dad, and then he heard a man yelling in the background. He said he wasn't sure whether it was Brian Orr or Jonas Orr because he said they sound similar. What we do know is that Jonas had used Tiffany's phone before this to text his wife. So they were together at this point in time, both using her phone to contact different people. We don't know where they were at this point, but we can conclude that they were in fact together. Tiffany's mother and stepfather said that they got to their house around 1 p.m. to grab some tools from the shed. They said that Tiffany wasn't there and that they never saw her on the day of the 5th. 
However, as we discussed, there is a screenshot from Brian's Facebook account where he did say that they did see her and that she was at their house and left before disappearing. Nonetheless, after picking up the tools and running into Bruce, who was looking for Tiffany, the couple left the house. At 1.26 p.m. and 1.52 p.m., Tiffany's phone pinged near where her body was found. From what I can piece together, the ping at 1.26 p.m. was an outgoing call to Tiffany's mother's landline, and the ping at 1.52 p.m. was from some other type of communication. At 2 p.m., the Star Tribune reports that Jonas finally returned his buddy's blazer. The owner testified that he'd never had any issues with his blazer, and his girlfriend said that it hadn't shown any signs of having any issues when Jonas dropped her off at work that morning or when he picked her up. At around 4 p.m. that day, Tiffany's mom and her stepdad got back to their house and noticed that the SIM card for their trail cam that they used as a security camera on their porch was missing. According to WBIW, the trail cam was in a little case that was held together by a wire. When they had come by at 1 p.m. to get the tools, Brian said that the wire was still securing the case. When they got back at 4 p.m., he says that it was not and that the SIM card was missing. What's interesting is that Bruce testified that he watched Tiffany's mom's house that day and said that he saw Jonas and his wife, Amber, go to the house and fiddle with something on the front porch. He assumed at the time that it was a light. In that court document on Justia Law, it is confirmed that Jonas and Amber did in fact go to Tiffany's mom's house together that afternoon. So I have several questions. The following morning, the morning of November 6, Brian Orr contacted his son Jonas, telling him that the trail cam's SD card was missing. Jonas and Amber then went over there again and replaced it. I know that that timeline was a lot of information to take in, but all of it was important and I didn't want to leave anything out. During testimony, which a lot of it was covered in the timeline, the prosecution talked about two statements that Jonas had made when questioned about Tiffany's disappearance. The first time he was questioned, very early in the investigation, Jonas told police that he hadn't seen Tiffany since September of 2014, two months before she went missing. However, the second time he was questioned, January 20th of 2015, the day he was arrested, he told the police that he had seen Tiffany the day she went missing, but that he'd picked her up in that blazer and dropped her off in Linton. Yeah, okay. The prosecution was also able to question Jonas's wife, Amber, and one of the first things they did was point out a statement she had made in January of 2015. The Tribune Star reports that she told the prosecutor that if she thought Jonas was guilty, she would divorce him. Spoiler alert, at the time of this trial, she was no longer Amber Orr. They also questioned Amber about another statement she made to police. She said something along the lines of, if someone was choked, they would fight back. But at the time of her statement, Tiffany's cause of death hadn't been released. She testified that she only said that because she had looked at Jonas's back after he came home on the 5th, looking for scratches, thinking he'd been cheating on her, and that's why he had been late. According to the outlet, Amber said she hadn't seen any. An inmate that was in jail with Jonas was also called to the stand. According to the court document on Justia Law, he said that one day in jail, he and Jonas were watching a TV show about a cold case murder when this inmate told Jonas that he found it hard to believe that someone could avoid talking about a crime for so long. 
To which he said Jonas replied, you'd be amazed at what you can live with when you have to. The inmate also testified that Jonas said he didn't feel bad for what he'd done to Tiffany, but he did feel bad about the baby and asked the inmate if he thought God would forgive him. As trials go, the victim is sometimes villainized to try and discredit whatever, and Tiffany's drug use was a huge topic. According to the Tribune Star, a friend of Jonas's testified that he'd seen Jonas give Tiffany pills to feed her drug habit, and her own mother testified, telling the court that Tiffany used men to get what she wanted as far as pills or money. And no, you're not the only one raging. The rest of the trial concluded that due to evidence found in the cornfield, they believed that the struggle occurred there, and that is where she and baby Bryston were killed. The leaf inside of the knot tied around her neck using her own jacket alluded to the fact that they were, in fact, outside in that cornfield when she was killed. No one specifically reported on why Tiffany's body was unrecognizable. However, according to the Tribune Star, the judge mentioned that she had been subjected to nature and scavenging animals. Red fibers similar to the red fibers on the red fleece jacket used to strangle Tiffany were found in the borrowed Chevy Blazer. To sum up this trial, Jonas was fucked. It took the jury less than two hours to find him guilty of both Tiffany and baby Bryston's murders. At Jonas's sentencing hearing, he naturally didn't have a word to say, that is until after he was sentenced to 120 years in prison. When he was walking out, the Tribune Star reports that he looked over to his father, Tiffany's stepfather, and said, I love you, to which Brian Orr responded, God is on our side. Our side? These assholes, both Tiffany's mom and stepdad, had the balls to tell the outlet that they believe Jonas is innocent and that someone else killed Tiffany. But they went a step further. Fucking Brian said that he believes Bruce's family is involved in Tiffany's death. These two cannot quit. Not when Tiffany accused Jonas of rape, not when Tiffany disappeared, and not when the Encyclopedia of Evidence kicked Jonas in the face. And I mean, there's something to be said about standing up for the wrongfully convicted, but I think we can all agree here that this ain't it. There is determined, and then there's just plain dumb. All Tiffany ever wanted was love and stability, which was the only thing she wanted to give her sweet baby Bryston. Jonas Orr not only stole that from her, but stole that from her family and stole that from baby Bryston's father. With time, Jonas Orr gave appealing his conviction a whirl and failed at that just like he had failed at living any kind of respectable life. He will now be serving out the rest of his, the next 120 years, in his cement forever box in prison. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Tiffany's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and any other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.
side note, I know that I am terrible at pronouncing the word tribune, so forgive me.